Okay, welcome to uh, the politics of comparative legal systems or comparable comparative legal systems and politics. This is, thank you, theoretically a junior senior level course, but I welcome anyone from freshman or sophomore year who feels like they're interested or want to go for an advanced course early on. This is a class that will Assume that you've had some experience in, in comparative politics. How many of you have taken the comparative politics class? It's not vital, but it helps. Looks like about a third of you have. Um, so I'm going to have to spend a fair amount of time teaching you a little bit on how to compare uh, across political systems. Uh, a word about that. When we say we compare, uh, we say we look for differences among similar cases, or we look for similarities among different cases. That's the method. That is, we're looking to mimic natural science. You would know, know about a natural science experiment in public health. No doubt you've heard about placebos. Everyone heard about placebos? Which is a, a pill you take thinking that you might be getting the uh, test medicine when in fact it's just a, a pill. That's not even a perfect control, of course, because there's psychological effects. Sometimes if you take a placebo, you think you're getting better just because you're taking something. So it's not even, even that's not perfect, but it's a lot easier to control one group against another that are supposed to be identical, and you're looking for differences, first of all, differences in outcomes, and then in the case of an experiment, whatever the experimental effect would be, which in the case of a medical test would be the pill. Uh, if you have two identical groups, one group has, takes the pill, the other takes a placebo, the pill uh, results in higher or lower deaths or incidences of cancer, or whatever you're studying, you attribute the difference in the outcome to the difference on the input side, which is the pill. So in politics, when we compare, we're trying to figure out how to First of all, typically mimicking natural science to similar groups, not identical because in the real world you're never going to find two identical groups unless you do an experiment. And we do have in political science a professor uh, who specializes in uh, experiments. And of course, it's similar to psychology. If any of you have taken psychology, you've probably uh, been treated like a rat in a rat you know, or, or that's a metaphor. You're treated uh, as if you're being experimented upon by something you see, something you taste, etc. And they try to figure out if you can remember what you saw or whatever they do in psychology. We have that in political science, but the typical uh, type of study that's done, when it, which uses the comparative method, tries to get groups that are similar, but you can never get them identical. And especially if you're not doing an experiment, you're taking, say, Russia compared to France, or the United States compared to the United Kingdom. And so the two groups are never identical. They're, they may be similar. And most importantly, they should be similar on the, the, the particular thing you're interested in. Uh, but that is, in short, the comparative method, taking two groups, deciding whether they're basically similar or basically different, if they're basically similar, you try to figure out what explains the difference in the outcome based on some difference on the input side. Uh, I didn't, oh, we do have one magic marker. So um, 
this is kind of cause and effect. When we're doing comparisons, the ideal one is to take similar cases, which means the outcome is similar, and you're looking for differences. So for example, uh, in criminology, uh, tip classic, uh, the study of crime, looking at why crime goes up or down. You take two cities that are similar, they're not identical, let's say Baltimore and Philadelphia, um, and Baltimore has higher crime rate, or let's say the, the, the rate of increase in crime, or decrease for that matter, uh, may be higher in Baltimore than you think what does Baltimore have that might explain why the crime is going down faster than in Philadelphia? It might be the unemployment rate. It might be a new style of policing. Whatever it is, what you're trying to come up with is an understanding of how two basically similar entities, units, uh, countries, cities, states, um, hemispheres, uh, styles of policing, what is it on the input side, in the language of algebra, this would be x and this would be y, cause and effect. Um, this, is the, this is the comparative method. Got syllabi up front, please. Thank you. So instead of looking at voting rates or sure. you know, in comparative politics, you might look at political parties, elections. Uh, turnout and voting, all these kinds of things. The subject matter of this course will primarily be courts, police, and to a lesser extent parole, probation, uh, institutions of the criminal justice system. I've, I've tried to make it this semester just modern political systems. Uh, in the past I've taught it uh, law at, from a historical perspective going back to primitive cultures and trying to figure out what is law what is a legal sanction? What, what is the definition of a law? Uh, and that was a very useful device. And I, I, in my lectures, I will give you some of that insight. Uh, classic debates would involve such questions as, do you have to have a punishment for a rule to be a law? Or is it merely a social custom? Does it have to be a government authority? Does it have to be central sanction? What about shunning within a community? Uh, does that make it a law? In, in the primitive cultures, call it so-called, or in our modern society. So um, we're not going to do the criminal justice topics until the end of the semester. Uh, we're going to start off basically preparing for the main project of the class, which I've used for three years in a row in different classes, and I think it's been very successful, which is the preparation of a moot court. So those of you that think you want to be a lawyer or go to law school, um, you're all going to have an opportunity to do this case. And I picked a case, a hypothetical case like I have last two years, uh, from international law for the following reason. Um, it's going to be held at the International Criminal Court. The reason is that the International Criminal Court combines civil law with the common law. And so we're going to be studying the two major families of law in the world in modern legal systems, those which derive uh, from England, English post-colonies like the United States, Nigeria, India, Canada, uh, 
not Scotland, interestingly enough. They had their own system. Um, all the former English colonies, which are about one-third of the countries in the world, have common law. And we, we have common law here. Uh, in about two-thirds of the world's countries, they have civil law. Latin America, the continent of Europe, um, most of Asia that's not English post-colonies have codes. And so in the first third of the class, we're going to learn about the legal system of most of the world, two-thirds of the world approximately, which is in most cases derived from the Roman law. Now this is the Eastern Roman Empire, not the Western Roman Empire. You may know that Rome fell when various Germanic tribes uh, invaded, beginning, I think, in the fourth century AD. And in these invasions, uh, Rome eventually decided we better keep the empire going. So they moved it uh, to uh, what became known as the Byzantine Empire later, the Greek Empire. But it was really the Eastern Roman Empire, where most of the people, at least in the official circles, spoke Greek. Uh, and that was based in the country, the city of Constantinople, now known as uh, Istanbul. And uh, Constantine uh, was the emperor that, uh, sorry, Justinian, excuse me. Justinian was the emperor in about the fifth century AD that developed the law for the Roman Empire, which for all practical purposes didn't include Italy, France, and Spain, those areas t t known as those countries today, but rather uh, what became known as much of the Ottoman Empire, the Middle East, but especially the Balkans uh, and throughout the Peloponnesians and, and, and elsewhere, we have the uh, Greek-speaking Roman Empire, which was really the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, and then that code it continued in existence for well over a thousand years. And then when Napoleon tried to conquer Europe in the wake of the French Revolution, he not only uh, installed republics replacing monarchies, but he tried to legitimate the republics as political systems by saying, you're going to have law, rather than arbitrary, monarchical, theologically legitimated uh, dynasties. You're, instead of having, in a short, uh, you know, the, the French monarchy, which we just got rid of, you're no longer going to have the Russian monarchy, you're not going to have the German etc. And as a result, he said, here, you're going to start with this Roman code. Here's the syllabus now. And you're going to adapt it to uh, local conditions. Now, there are some exceptions, like China has codes, but it's Confucian codes. Yes? Yeah. Um, we try to uh, legitimize um, the law instead of those arbitrary Who tried to impose I mean, the law? Yeah. Well, Napoleon conquered the territories in the 1820s, 1815s. Am I he lost Waterloo was 1812, right? Uh, no, Russia was 1812. 1815 was Waterloo. So 1809, 1810, 1811. I'm not a good historian. I'm sorry. But in that period of time when he had defeated uh, the Habsburg Empire temporarily, the Prussian Empire, uh, these large empires that uh, on the continent of Europe. Uh, and although he was defeated at Waterloo, they kept the legal systems. And the, the uh, little virus, if you don't like it, or the inspiration of nationalism, the idea that each people should have their own state, also was let out of the bottle. Uh, and Europe maintained 
a relative peace for most of that century compared to the horrific wars of the 20th century and Napoleon's own efforts prior to that time, but about a 70-year Cold War, as it were, a long peace. Uh, but meanwhile, nationalism was brewing and brewing and exploded with the World War I events and so forth. Uh, but part of the, th the stimulus for the development of nationalism is each country was developing their own legal codes. Each country was saying, hey, we have our own law. And if you've studied comparative politics, you're probably familiar with this concept of legitimacy, which basically means the government we have is the right one for us. If you have a king, or it's called a Kaiser in Germany for a Caesar, which is the czar in Russia, a dictator, you know, you're subject, God has ordained it, I tell you what's good for you, and that's that. So for 70 years, approximately, these states, even though they were under monarchies, because the monarchies were restored by Metternich uh, and the other kingdoms uh, in the post-Napoleonic uh, War uh, meetings in Vienna, uh, there was this notion, we have our own law. It, it was based from this Roman code, but we adapted to local conditions. The law is what's governing a whole lot of things that was done arbitrarily before. And the law then became a source of nationalism, contributor, facilitator of nationalist feelings, as well as taking part of the governance out of the arbitrary hands of the ruling monarch and his prime minister, whoever his bureaucrats were. So we can already see by this illustration that uh, politics and law affect each other. Law affects politics. Politics affects law. Uh, law, for example, in modern times is said when it's functioning to depoliticize politics. That may sound odd. But what it does is by having procedures, however imperfect, uh, those procedures regulate conflict. You owe me this money, pay me my money. Uh, conflict over you owe the t these taxes. Uh, a court resolves the conflicts between usually two individuals or an organization and individuals, but occasionally between larger political parties if it involves constitutional questions. Uh, and it's not decided by parliamentary politics. It's not decided by elections. It's not decided um, by a, a cabal meeting in secret uh, on behalf of a king. So. That depoliticizes the society because the conflict is reduced to a court procedure with all its formalities, its efforts not to be arbitrary, to follow the procedures, and to give a ruling which is going to be consistent for one set of situations that is similar or identical to another situation. So everyone tends to be treated the same way in, if they have the same kind of problem. You owe your money, you got to pay. But you can't throw someone in prison just because you owe money. It's not a crime. It's a violation of the law. But not every violation. In fact, most violations of law are not crimes. And that's the way modern states have generally emerged. In other words, there are laws that the state has power to enforce among private individuals, private corporations, where the remedies are paying money or uh, court orders to pay money or court orders uh, 
to uh, prepare for bankruptcy. And then there are laws which are regulated by uh, criminal sanctions, which puts you in prison or makes you pay fines if it's a, a less serious offense. Societies which are very political, the law plays a, a less role. And politics, not formal high politics of elections and parliamentary politics, uh, but the low politics, as it were, of you being on this side, on this issue, with this community, on every issue that is about you. So you have your ethnic identity. That also means you side with this politician in this political struggle. Uh, and the decision of how you spend your social life, how you, who you eat dinners with, is a political decision. How many of you uh, thought about politics when you decided to go on a date you know, in the last two weeks? There are some people who probably are politically correct and say that only date conservatives or only date liberals. Um, that sounds almost quaint, but you know, in any event, you know there are people like that, and that you know, and, and occasionally they make a big deal of you know, um, some of my favorite friends are Republicans, or some of my favorite friends are Jews, or whatever the expression was, uh, in order to say that you're not prejudiced. But in fact, it just it's the exception that proves the rule that you only hang out with certain kind of people, and um, you know that. I wouldn't say that if you, don't, you know, if you have an ethnic identity and most of your friends are Latinos and you're Latino, that makes you political, unless that group is highly political itself. But there's you know, a kind of ethnic orientation, a racial orientation among friendships, but it's not necessarily exclusive in any way on average. And in any event, it's not political. But in a lot of countries of the world, um, everything is political. All your friends are the same political party, they have the same political struggles, they have the same beliefs, the same worldview. And these are societies which tend to be more divided and have less rule of law. Now that generalization I made is based on the comparative method. I look at a society, um, you pick a country that's quite politicized, say Argentina, uh, still fighting the dirty war of the late 60s and early 70s people. Uh, really divide themselves on their politics socially, economically, uh, and of course politically. In the United States, people don't even divide themselves politically on politics, political questions, because they, they don't vote, they don't have a strong preference, all politicians are viewed as corrupt. Um, that may be, you could argue, too apolitical. In other words, people don't give a darn about politics, and so they don't pay attention, so the government can get away with more stuff. Or people blindly are led by the government to uh, undertake major actions or policies, which they may come to regret. If we'd only paid more attention, we, could, we couldn't get away with uh, these kinds of things. All right, so um, just to review then, the major project of the course is the moot court. Your writing assignment will be for the moot court. One of the three books uh, is actually a binder of readings, and the second half of that binder will be criminal justice readings we're going to look at at the end of the semester. Uh, the beginning of the semester, I'm going to put in some readings to help you look at our moot court case, which you'll notice at the bottom of the syllabus. Um, you'll see uh, actually the top of page two, the, the title of it. It's going to be a criminal trial prosecuting a head of state for a chemical 
or herbicidal weapons and long-term civilian suffering identified after a peace agreement as a case of a crime against humanity at the International Criminal Court. If that doesn't mean anything to you or sounds complicated, don't worry. Um, hopefully, it will be something very understandable to all of you as we prepare part of every class for our moot court because not only uh, is it a complicated question, uh, and it's some of you have taken me before, most of you have not, and most of you have not thought about perhaps legal methods. I don't know, how many of you have taken a law course before this one? Okay, so 25% um, at the most, 33%, so at least two-thirds of you have not. So we're going to have to learn about what is a trial, what is criminal trial, and I'm going to also try to teach you about the International Criminal Court where we're going to use methods that are similar to not only the United States, what you see on TV, on LA Law, what I saw as a kid on Perry Mason, which of course is not even the reality of what happens in the United States. It's what Hollywood drums up. Um, and if it's in a moving theater, then you can see even more violence and even more sex than actually happens in real life, but you gotta sell movies, so. Um, and the methods of the civil law system, which we're gonna be studying steadily in the first month, trying to learn how legal education, legal training, recruitment, and the actual laws themselves are similar and different to the common law system that some of you have been exposed to in a formal class and all of you have been living under, whether you realize it or not, uh, for your whole life. Okay, so the reading uh, also, so this book here, Comparative Legal Traditions, this handbook is our main textbook and it will begin with the civil law systems and eventually evolve to common law systems and end with supranational systems, the European Union and the European Court of Human Rights, uh, looking at supranational law, that is above nations, super above nationalism. And our moot court will also look at the International Criminal Court, known as the ICC, which has just begun its first cases, um, mostly in the context of war, and we have this hypothetical case uh, that we'll be working on. So you want to think about uh, when we uh, first begin these readings next week, because the Best Way Binder Shop is never completely ready for the onslaught of people, so don't bother going over there right away, um, but if you go later in the week, you'll have the readings for next Monday, a week from today, on the Best Way Binder Shop. And there'll, there'll be a, you know three or four pages per class from that. It's not gonna be long and extensive, but I, I think what we need to do is be talking about these issues every class a little bit, so that by the time we come to the last class of the semester to have our moot court, everybody will have a strong understanding, will have a great enjoyment of the moot court. Now we could adjust the syllabus a little bit to have two moot courts and two classes if a lot of you want to be lawyers and arguing and, and judges and not being witnesses, we can easily have two moot courts, the same set of facts, and it will be different. Uh, and I'll just wait and see when I ask you, uh, probably a week from today, possibly on Wednesday, you know, roughly how many of you would like to do the lawyer role. Let me warn you that if you are in the legal team, you and your colleagues, whether it's two or three or so, or slightly more four, you know, we'll write the legal brief for your side, either the prosecution or the defense. Uh, if you're a judge, you write the decision, 
And if you are uh, witnesses, you do what I call a witness statement, which is basically ex explaining your testimony, how it supports your side's case, uh, and the questions you anticipate getting from the both sides, both on examination and cross-examination. And I think you know, you'll find this a fair amount of work, but like a lot of team projects, a lot of fun. Um, maybe not everyone finds it fun. Tiffany, you're sort of nodding your head. I, is it fun? Yeah, it, it, it's hard in the sense because it's new and you've never done it before. But I think you'll find it's fun. And of course, you can ham it up in the moot court. If you like, I'll take a camera and we'll, we'll give, give you uh, uh, videos of that. Um, then for a main theme of the course, I picked one law, the ongoing controversy on torture, or call it coercive interrogation. This reader has essays on both sides of the issue, pro and con. There's no viewpoint uh, being espoused. And we're just trying to analyze torture, both in terms of the issue itself as an ongoing facet of contemporary life, the fact that all countries do it, probably all police forces, at least in big cities, use torture as well. And it's universally criminal. And it's banned by every legal system in every modern country. And it's also banned under international law. So it raises a lot of moral or ethical questions as well as political science questions. How is it that you know, we honor this rule in the breach? Kind of like marriage. That was a joke. Um, <laughs> Uh, you could also say, you know, but people get remarried at a high rate too. So just because they've been divorced doesn't mean that they necessarily don't like marriage as an institution. Uh, all right, so um, we're going to be reading this uh, from this book every other class, and you'll have different uh, views of the issue. Both not only uh, it should it be criminal or not, but what do we do with if it's going to be legal? Are we going to regulate it and get warrants from judges to permit it on specified <coughs> circumstances? The so-called ticking time bomb scenario where the detainee is being interrogated because he or she knows where this bomb is going to go up that's going to kill five or five billion people, whatever the case may be. Uh, questions about uh, whether this causes perverse incentives where judges don't really know if they're being told the truth. Uh, whether this is really a ticking time bomb situation. Uh, how do you know someone knows the information? How do you know uh, they're going to give you the truth? So this is a way of having a contemporary problem. It's not going away uh, that the various administrations have grappled with. The Bush administration denied using torture, but then restricted its own activities increasingly, and especially in its second term, to the point where the interrogation policies of the second George W. Bush term are not altogether apparently much different from the Obama administration, in spite of the rhetorical uh, flourishes that you've seen and, and, and the commitment initially to control, uh, to, to decommission Guantanamo uh, by this month. And now it appears it's not even going to be brought out of existence a year from now because they can't buy the prison because the Bureau of Prisons of the US government is out of money, and Congress is not willing to appropriate the money to buy the hardly used state prison in Illinois where they were going to put all the detainees from Guantanamo. And this says nothing about the fact that there are all these other prisons around the world that nobody talks about where they could just move these prisoners to as well, or they could, uh, but that raises the question of 
uh, how come nobody focuses on Bagram Air Base or these Navy brigs or these secret uh, holes in the uh, map of the world uh, where worse things are said to go on than what happened at Guantanamo. So that's the way I've organized the class. It's supposed to give you two major foci, one on uh, the torture issue, one on the moot courts. So you'll learn the substance of two areas of law in great depth. You'll have a chance to role play uh, in a legal situation that will be challenging, but in the end, I think very rewarding. And we'll have a general discussion about the legal systems of the world, especially between the two major families of law, the civil law system and the common law system. So what will you get out of this class? Why, why are you going to be happy? Or what, what am I going to promise to try to convey to you as a result of taking this class? First, uh, I, a fair number of you, I bet, are thinking about law school. And a smaller number of those perhaps will actually go to law school. Uh, but it's a good way to find out about law school. It's not US law, which is what you'd be practicing as a US trained lawyer in most cases. But it will teach you you know, what it's like to be a lawyer. Second, as a political science subject, this class will explore the various ways courts and politics, and specifically law, and more specifically crime and politics interact. And this is uh, interesting because we want to understand how our political systems operate, and not just our judiciaries and our police forces and to a lesser extent, probation and parole systems work. By the way, there's seats up here if you want to sit down. Okay. Um, so, you know, this could range from a lot of the contemporary issues we see uh, to more macro factors about the nature of politics itself. Let me give you a few specific examples. Um, if someone is in prison for a long-term sentence, why is the prisoner there, okay? From a general perspective, we can talk about theories of deterrence, retribution, uh, and you know, retribution is a word for punishment. Um, rehabilitation is a third goal, and those are the big three that you'll hear about historically. Retribution, most people are sent to prison to be punished. Deterrence, the idea, you know, if you're going to be punished, you may think twice about committing a crime. And rehabilitation is the notion that uh, if you go to prison, you know, just because other institutions of society, like the religious institutions, your family, the schools, didn't teach you proper behavior, the prison's going to be the place where you're going to learn that. And I would add a fourth one, which wasn't historically uh, in the textbooks, but one that came about. Uh, let's say in the last 10 years, 15 years, and I don't even know what the word for it is, but let's just say, you know, take people off the street. Removal. What's the word? Removal. Removal. Okay. That's better. Thank you. Removal. <coughs> and, you know, if, if most crimes are committed by the, the very tiny minority, you remove those people for a longer period of time and put them in prison, the crime rate will go down. Now, uh, there's lots of pros and cons about all these things. The high incarceration rates in the United States, which exceed those of almost every country in the world, uh, has a huge social cost. 
Uh, and you know, generally, people who get rehabilitated in prison are the minority, the very small minority. They're very dramatic, wonderful stories. Um, actual fact, you could say, you know, it produces crime. You know, you put someone in prison who isn't really a criminal. Many innocent people have sent to prison, but even someone who committed a small crime comes out a hardened criminal because you're dealing with hardened criminals. The mafia operates behind the walls, uh, does hits on people from behind the prison walls as a result of ways they communicate or visitors who come in. Um, you know, we, we try to have prison be somewhat humane, but you know, that le leads to that kind of activity. Anyway, these are the kind of the general things we think about, about the prison system. But there are lots of little specific controversies that come up all the time. California has this law, I think it's still in existence, three strikes, that is three felonies and you're in for life. And a felony could be a crime involving a drug sale, which in and of itself may have you know, consequences for individuals, but these are consenting adults buying and selling drugs. No one's you know, being violently hit over the head, at least from that particular <laughs> drug sale. Three drug sales and you're in prison for life. There, there, there's questions about um, parole that come up all the time. It comes up in American elections when Michael Dukakis ran in 1984. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, no, oh, that was 88. No, Mond uh, Dukakis ran in 88, Mondale ran in 84. Okay, sorry. Um, in 1988 presidential election, um, George Herbert Walker Bush Bush 41, the father of George W. Bush, ran an ad about uh, a parolee from the Massachusetts prison who committed a murder out on parole. And a lot of people, including myself, thought it was a kind of a racist movie. Uh, it's advertising because it just showed the picture of the guy's face, which is a black face dominating. In any event, you know, it also sent the signal that you know, the governor has the final say on parole decisions, right? You get interviewed for a year when you're in your last year when you might be up for parole. The people, the, the counselors inside the prison will recommend some people for parole. Then go before a parole board. That process probably takes a year as well. And then the governors of most states are authorized to approve or to deny. And there's always these cases of individuals who you know, made the wrong decision in an impulse, often with a drug sale, and they killed somebody and they're in for life, or maybe they got 25 to life, but even in some states, life can allow you to be released early, uh, and the person has been rehabilitated. The person, you, know, you talk to the person, you're convinced, but you know, deep down there are other people, including politicians, who remember it's the Willie Horton, Horton, H-O-R-T-O-N, ad, that uh, Bush ran against Dukakis in the presidential election, and there are a lot of governors who will reverse a parole board's decision because they don't want to take a chance. They don't care about the guy who's already spent half his adult life behind bars, and they don't care about the fact that the person is being rehabilitated uh, and so forth. So that's the kind of controversy. A lot of people die in prison of diseases. Now, that's partly, I'm sure, because the environment is not so healthy, but it makes you wonder whether that prisoners and inmates get proper health care. Now, with prison, you know, it's very expensive to send someone to prison. Something, if you include all the cost of construction and the operating expenses of a prison, it can be anywhere from thirty-five to fifty thousand dollars per year per inmate. 
very, very expensive process um, that we engage in, and a lot of states are broke. In fact, right now, California and New York are practically bankrupt, and a whole lot of states have never been so poor as a result of this Wall Street Fed uh, depression or near depression that we've had. And now we find out that although the rate of job loss is less than it was at its peak, you know, 85,000 jobs were lost in December. That's compared to 685,000 jobs that were lost the previous December. But you know, in other words, we haven't turned the corner and the states are broke. What are they going to do? Well, maybe one thing they might do is release sick prisoners from prison so that somebody else can pay for it. Like the Medicaid program, which is much more paid by federal governments as opposed to state prisons, which are paid for the most part by state taxes. So I'm anticipating a lot of prisoners getting out and maybe getting better medical care and not dying of cancer in prison because the guards don't particularly care. I don't want to, you know, a lot of prisons don't even have infirmaries uh, and so forth. And the same can be said of even worse conditions for immigrant detention facilities for people who, most of whom, have never committed a crime. Uh, and they don't have infirmaries in these privately run uh, detention facilities, such as the one in Stewart, Georgia, that Corporation, uh, Corrections Corporations of America runs for about 1,500 detainees uh, who are um, suspected of being illegal immigrants. And that's, again, the distinction between a violation of law and a crime. It is illegal to be an illegal immigrant, but it's not a crime to be an illegal immigrant. And yet, putting in a detention facility, you have you don't get the guarantees that you get in a regular prison, which are not great. And in some states, you know, you can put someone in solitary confinement, or you can leave them in their prison cell, which is you know practically the size of a closet, 23 and a half hours out of 24 a day. And that changes your brain. And if you actually put someone in solitary confinement, there are biological studies that say that your, the brain changes, turn, turns you into mush. And that's arguably a case of torture. It certainly could be argued to violate the prohibition on cruelty in the US Constitution and in international law. Um, so those are a couple of you know, contemporary examples. And I'm going to provide lots of contemporary examples if I do my homework. And I promise to try to do my homework uh, to make this class lectures relevant to contemporary American life. So you'll see how uh, these cutting edge issues, for example, the ones I just mentioned to you, are political issues right now about how to deal with the judicial system, the prison system, the parole system, for example, and the, the unlawful but non-criminal status of uh, immigrants who are not legal immigrants in the United States. Um, and so you'll learn about <coughs> contemporary issues, you'll learn about how the political system tries to deal with it, and then we'll think about these things in more conceptual, broader terms to try to figure out why it is that uh, these issues come up in the first place and will always come up in any political system. And these come up both in terms of you know, how we deal with crime, how we deal with unlawful activity, but also these more general political aspects, such as <clears throat> why does society treat um, a class of activity as unlawful or even criminal, as opposed to letting uh, the parliaments decide such questions? Why do courts decide a lot of these issues of conflict resolution or not in some societies 
as opposed to others? Uh, why is it that some states uh, will um, execute lots of people even though they have the most crowded prisons and convict the most people of crimes of any state in the country, namely Texas, uh, and so forth? Yeah. Yeah, um, it's like crime more explicit, explicit, like is it more written than, than a violation of the law? A violation of the law is any violation uh, of the official rules of the state, the government, the country. A crime is a very small group of rules uh, which if they are violated will either, if it's a, typically if it's a misdemeanor you have up to one year in prison and possibly a fine. And if it's a felony, we'll put you in prison for more than a year. So uh, unlawful activity in which the, the, the remedy is you, know, you pay your money, or you let that tenant stay in that apartment, or you pay a fine for violating, doesn't send the landlord or the debtor to prison. In the US Constitution, it's prohibited to put someone in prison for failure to pay your debts. That is, you know, just not having the money. If there's fraud and you don't pay your debts because you deliberately don't um, pay the money you have or you're deceiving, that could be criminal. But the mere fact of being poor and unable to pay is not a crime. And any law that would make it a crime would be unconstitutional in the United States. So I'm not sure what the figures are, but I'm willing to bet that crimes will only represent maybe 10% of the laws of the United States. So. You can, 90% of the illegal activity uh, is not criminal. Now, now there's some you know, laws that are both uh, illegal and criminal, but there's a civil remedy as opposed to a criminal, and, and a criminal remedy. So for example, murder uh, or even manslaughter would be a crime. Unlawful death is a typical term for the civil trial where you sue the murderer for money, and that's a lawsuit between private individuals. That would be an example of where the same act has civil law consequences which are non-criminal as well as criminal consequences. Uh, any questions so far about how we're organized and so forth? Question? Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah. Best way copy shop is Locate on Decatur Street. I've lost my bearings exactly where we are now, but Decatur Street goes east-west up the hill, and Best Way is on the right. They're a proud sponsor of the basketball team for the last 20 years, um, and the nice print stuff. shop used to be next to it, and I think it's been out of business, but that's not the place to go. Okay. Best Way is the first of the two copy shops, and I will not have the readings there ready for you today or tomorrow, but at the end of the week, um, We'll begin that segment of the class as well. So we go there every week to pick up readings. No, you can. You can. You'll be able to get the readings probably by tomorrow or Wednesday. No, you, you have two textbooks. These two books. One, the textbook here, and this readings of torture, and then the cop. The readings in the Best Way Copy Shop will be the first half on our moot court preparation for our moot court, and the second half. We'll be reading actually criminal justice from this book. Small segment of that book. So this being an upper level class, the reading load is heavier than a freshman or sophomore class. If you come to class regularly or always, 
You know, you won't have, I think, any trouble staying up with the course. I want you, though, if you're not to understand, to raise your hand and ask me questions. I encourage, welcome, appreciate questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Now, it is true that you can ask a dumb question if you haven't done any work in the class. Um, but, you know, we're all busy, and I understand, and I'm, I'm going to be patient. Please, you know, there's no penalty. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Ask a dumb question. It's not dumb. I'll never remember that you asked it anyway, so don't worry about it. Uh, if I'm speaking too fast, ask me to slow down. But I, I am, I have been doing this for the last two years, recording my lectures. And that's not to discourage you from coming to class, but all the class lectures will be available, unless I, my machines don't function properly, on iTunes U for Georgia State for this class. It's not on the public site. Uh, everyone know how to get to iTunes U? Okay. Um, if you go to the Georgia State, I guess I could turn on this. I didn't, the computer's not on. Um, so I'll just explain how to do it and then demonstrate it later when the computer comes on. But essentially, go to the main web page, go to popular links, which is on the lower right side, and you click on iTunes U at Georgia State. I'll also put a link on our uh, Learn page. Is that what they call it now? I keep I keep changing the name. It's been so many different names. But anyway, I'll put a link to iTunes U there. Then you log in with your campus ID and password. And then you'll have a menu of classes uh, that you're taking that have these kinds. Um, I generally put up, you know, if we have 28 classes, about 28 lectures there. They're designed, you know, you can fast forward. You just move the, I don't know what you call it, but the what would be equivalent to fast forward, and you can get to the part of the lecture that you might want to hear again uh, and get the information on that. Uh, if you do the readings and go to the class, I always feel like I don't see how you can't get an A. Generally, my grade distribution is one-third C, one-third B, one-third A. If it's a particularly great class, this being an upper-level class, the grades tend to be a little bit higher. And you know, if you have great class participation, you come, you participate, I will raise your grade. So there's no quota on that. If, if I've got 45 people in here that uh, are all superb, um, you'll all get a, a bonus. The bonus will be one notch, like B to B plus, A minus to A, or A to A plus, whatever it is. OK? Um, I got an attendance sheet here. I think I'll just pass it around if you would just check off your name and write on there how you want me to call you if you have a nickname. Um, and I'll take attendance in the future. Uh, but today I'll pass on that just because. Just want us to like, check next to our email or something. Next to your name. OK, on midterm and final, uh, I'm going to have online multiple choice. And it will be based on the class lectures and the readings. Uh, generally speaking, I try to cover all the reading. And I think I'll be able to do that. Uh, but you know, as a rule of thumb, the, I write the questions based on the lectures. So you can also you know, review the, the, or the presentations online and get the lectures that way. 
uh, when you're taking the test. I generally give you a few days to take the test, and you can take it multiple times. Your highest score counts. If you don't like it, we can just do it once in class and get it over with. Um, yes? Well, there's the limit of how many times you can take it in the number of time, time you have. But generally, people take it three times. The first time, I think they just look at the questions. And they get you know one question right. The second time, they take it, and they see their score, and they panic. And then the third time, they get a group of 30 people together. And, um, you know, there's no policing. Uh, but generally, a word to the wise, the people who do best are the people you know, who've been doing the work and basically take the test by themselves. It can be, if you get in a group and you, do, and you plan on using the group, it can be a case of the blind leading the blind. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, you know, the, the student that you know, got the highest score last semester in my human rights class, I gave her an A plus. She ended up with a 4.01. Um, you know, she never got anything lower than an A in her entire, entire time here. And, uh, you know, she just did the reading by herself and took the test by herself. But maybe she's pretty atypical. But in any event, you know, if you take, do all the course requirements, you won't get below a C. You don't, if you don't do a, a class assignment, you'll get a D or an F. But if you come to class, uh, and you know, if you do the work, there's no reason why you, anyone in this room can't get an A. Uh, and as I said, although it's roughly one-third A, if this is an outstanding class, that percentage will be higher than that. The multiple choice questions, you know, I write them. I write them as clearly as I can. Uh, they're not perfect, uh, but they're just designed to give you know, an indication about basically how much you've learned. And the midterm, you know, it may be a little bit getting used to. Often, to save time, I have sort of all of the above and none of the above for D, for you know, answer D or answer E. Uh, some students find that confusing, so let me warn you, generally you're going to see a lot of questions where two of the answers are going to be all of the above or none of the above. Uh, that just makes, makes it, because if I have to think of five different answers, it just takes too much time to write them. <laughs> and I, 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 I try to have, you know, you know, a mix of difficult and easy questions. Uh, if there is a problem with the questions, you can email the class on ULEARN to ask for clarification. And I will answer on ULEARN so that the entire class will get the benefit of my explanation. And if necessary, it didn't happen last semester, but I might even change the wording of a question <coughs> after a day if there's a real problem or a typo or something like that. Uh, let me ask you to all verify. I haven't actually done, the, done, the, done it yet, but I'll try to do it after class. Verify that you can get on to ULEARN. Sometimes if you've registered late for a class, it's hard. If you registered before the class started, then you should be enrolled. And then the online test on ULEARN should work automatically. Yeah? OK. Um, it's the campus web page for classes. And uh, most, I don't most courses ha use it? Yeah, so you'll learn very quickly. No, you go th get through from the main Georgia State web page. You'll see something called GoSolar, which is course information. And then you learn. You click on you learn, and you log in with your campus ID and password. Uh, I'll have the syllabus on there. I'll have a bulletin board for you to ask questions, make comments, debate each other, ask for clarifications. 
anything else you want to do. Links for the class, that can all go up there. I'll put interesting stuff up as well. But certainly the main purpose of the bulletin board is for you to ask questions about the reading, about the class assignments, to get clarification on concepts. Uh, I think you know, it's a one of the ways, in addition to you know, consulting you on your own paper, that I give you one-on-one -on -one attention. Okay? And you can get an answer a lot faster on ULearn. I ask, unless it's really a matter of privacy, that you, you post any academic question on ULearn so that the rest of the class can benefit from my answer. And also so I don't have to write the same answer to 14 different emails with the same question. Um, obviously, if any, you have a personal matter, you don't have to ask it on ULearn. Uh, <coughs> most of the questions are not personal and so forth. As far as extensions go, uh, I generally don't offer them except, you know, a good excuse. Documented illness, documented death in the family. Then you will obviously get a chance to take the midterm later, the final as the case may be. So any, everyone clear about that? Then let me say a couple of words about the moot court. Um, trying to explain to you what exactly it is that we're going to have. Assuming we have one moot court, a lot of you will be witnesses. If we have two, then many more of you will be lawyers, but we'll have a prosecution on one side, a defense team on the other. We'll have a head of state who is the criminal defendant, and then we'll have witnesses. Now, one major decision we have to make <coughs> is whether you're going to have a set of facts uh, that is going to be imposed so that we don't spend a lot of time arguing about the facts and just deal with the complicated legal issues. My experience has been that there really it's pros and cons on both sides. It's much more fun to have factual disputes with witnesses and people denying, but there's got to be a way to, to basically have a core set of facts so that you're only disagreeing on the minor details but you know, one time we had you know the defense, the prosecution came in, alleged a set of facts, and the other, the defense came in, alleged a completely different set of facts, and it was like the event, one was the moon and one was the, the sun. You know, it was like they weren't even talking about the same events. So, uh, what I am going to say is that if we do have witnesses and factual disputes, I'm going to impose at least a core set of facts on you, so that we don't have the defense and prosecution talking. You know, one person is. One side is saying, you know, the chemi toxic chemicals that were used on the battlefield, you know, were, was napalm, and the other one would say, oh, we were just putting sanitary diapers on for the babies in the hospital. You know, it just it would be like two complete. It wouldn't be a trial, in other words. Uh, so uh, I think mo some people are more comfortable in a witness role. Some people want to be lawyers. Some people want to be judges. Uh, if if a lot of people want to be witnesses, then we'll have some factual disputes, but we'll try to keep them within limits. Do you, any people have an idea of what role they want to have at this point? So most of you don't know. A few of you. You're ready to lock me for the judge. Okay. Um, so most of you don't know. You just want to sort of feel your way for the time being. Uh, you know, the you might think the witness is less work. Uh, but remember, the, the lawyers' teams will write one document. So if you have a team of four lawyers, you divide up the work four ways. Whereas a witness statement would be you know, just your individual role. So 
don't, don't pick witness because you think it's a, a lot less work. It is less work, but it's not cat, a whole category of less work. Uh, and in any event, you'll have to understand the legal issues uh, to be an effective witness and to write your witness statement uh, for the class. Second point is that there are rules of procedure which are different in civil systems than in common law systems. Common law that we have in the United States has the adversarial form of justice. Whereas the civil law systems that I mentioned are in two-thirds of the world's countries have what is known as the inquisitorial, sounds like the inquisition, means to inquire. Uh, what, is this, what is this difference? In our legal system, the judge is neutral and is a rule keeper. And the two sides argue their side's viewpoint and the truth is supposed to be somewhere in between the middle. What you get, the basic, call it defect or advantage, is that you get two wildly exaggerated views of the law and the facts being argued before a judge, and nobody's arguing before the judge kind of middle position. So the role of the judge is to let these two sides follow the rules of procedure in providing their testimony, writing their legal briefs, and arguing the facts and the law. And then to come up with a conclusion, if there's a jury, they determine the fact. It determines the facts. If there's no jury, then the judge will also determine the facts, and always will determine the law that applies to the situation. Interpreting the law, and although they don't admit it, typically making law when the law is not particularly clear. In the inquisitorial system, again, this is the system exported around the world first. Uh, by Napoleon based on the Justinian Code, then exported by colonialism, just as English colonialism exported the common law, French, German, Dutch, Belgian, even Russian and Chinese colonialism and imperialism exported the legal codes to their colonies. So French West Africa uh, has basically French-based law. Uh, Rwanda and Burundi have Belgian-type law. Namibia has German-type law. Indonesia has Dutch-type legal code. And since independence, which ended most countries of the post-colonial Africa and Asia in 1963 with the independence of Rwanda and Burundi, uh, they now have adapted their legal codes to their own legal situations. A trial in an inquisitorial system is supposed to be a neutral search for the truth. Just as the adversarial approaches has, you know, either the prosecution or the plaintiff on one side or the defendant and the respondent on the other, depending on whether it's a criminal or a civil trial. A civil trial in the United States is a trial among private individuals for which there's no crime involved. And a criminal trial is one where the crime is involved. A civil legal system is different, right? There's civil law compared to common law. And then within the United States, you have civil trials and criminal trials. The word civil is used in both situations with different meanings. It's one of those words. I forgot. Is it a homonym? I can't remember. But anyway, 
When we say a civil trial, we're talking about a non-criminal trial among private individuals or corporations in the United States. When we say a civil legal system, we're talking about the legal systems of the continent of Europe, <coughs> French West Africa, and in, in effect, any country that wasn't a colony of, of Great Britain. There are a couple of exceptions, but basically that's the rule of thumb. So civil law uses inquisitorial trials. Common law uses adversarial trials. Adversarial trials have the judge as a neutral rule keeper and then a, a determiner of the legal fact, uh, of the le law applied to the facts as determined by the jury, which is the typical situation in the United States, atypical of other common law systems, although the more, co more common law countries are moving towards juries. Inquisitorial system usually does not have juries. There are usually two judges, a presiding judge who, who is something like a neutral rule keeper, and you have the prosecuting judge in the case of criminal trial or the um, investigating judge in the case of what we would call a civil trial. And that judge is got a view of what the facts are and a view of what the law is. And the purpose of the trial is to confirm or disconfirm the initial conclusions of the investigating judge uh, that took on the case earlier on. So what we call a district attorney, a prosecutor, they would call an investigating judge, typically. Uh, and then that investigating judge, or his or her appointees, would go and lead the case if it's a criminal trial. Uh, and then a presiding judge would make sure that the, the uh, testimony is taken according to the rules of either criminal and civil procedure as well as the presentation of documents undertaking a case. Now, the civil system is the system that most of the world uses. It's cheaper, right? You don't spend a lot of time with lawyers exaggerating their cases and the long, extensive documents. The government does its investigation. They don't necessarily have to produce a lot of documents. Indeed, they don't even have to write up their opinions. In the United States judge Judges don't have to write up their opinions, but they usually do on any large and important case. And the reason they do in a common law system is that we have a precedent system. The common law emerged from the bottom up, as it were, from cases. And when you go to American law school, you read cases dating back to the Magna Carta and some of the most important cases you'll read in your first year of law school in contracts and torts are from the 17th and 18th century. Mrs. Carbuncle in the torts class is the, 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 the ball that was toxic and when she was drinking her soda, you know, exploded or something. And she got all kinds of problems. And uh, the tort comes from the French word tort, which means wrong, is the harm. And therefore, assessing what is the harm, what is the duty of care, when an act of negligence has occurred. The precedents then grow from small to large. And in our United States system, we have uh, 50 court systems for the 50 states. And we have a federal system. 99% of the criminal laws are state laws. 
And so you become a member of the bar in the particular state, becoming expert, at least for the test, uh, on the precedence of that state court and the criminal and civil procedure of that state court in the roughly half of the bar exam that you take on the state test as opposed to the federal test, which is on the federal system. The federal system is you know, far less extensive, but it also is the, the laws of the government of the United States, and therefore deals with, on average, more important matters, at least to the society at large. But most common law crimes are murder, embezzlement, uh, assault and battery, fraud, criminal fraud, and so forth. These are all state laws. And while many of the precedents historically are derived from England after we became independent in 1776 and we had the first Federal Judiciary Act in 1789 of our second constitution, uh, then we developed a state system and a federal system. And so the precedents since 1789 were generally in the United States. And, and while cases were cited from England as uh, exoratory, in other words, persuasive, they weren't technically legally binding. So in inquisitorial systems, we're going to have the judges being very active, asking lots of questions, having assumptions about the facts. Critics of the inquisitorial system say, this puts the judges in a biased situation, depending on what they've concluded from the facts. and. In a criminal situation, technically vitiates or con contradicts the notion of innocent until proven guilty. Because the judge who's going to be deciding the case is also the person who is investigated and will uh, preside over the inquisition, if you don't like it, as opposed to just inquiring, and is already predisposed to be against you. Now, the counter argument of that is that in our system, 98% of defendants are found guilty, most of them pleading guilty. And critics would also say they plead guilty because they have a public defender, and the public defender has too many cases and just says, uh, make a plea bargain, you'll get a shorter sentence, and plead guilty, and that's it. Um, one of the many controversies about judicial access in the United States. But it's also argued that in our adversarial process, based on precedent, based on careful application of the law to specific sets of facts. We have a less arbitrary legal system. The, it's much more likely that like situations will have the same rule applied to that situation. And there is a tendency for political stability to be greater in English post-colonies. It certainly was true in the first decades after independence when the post-colonies of Africa and Asia found a pattern where the English post-colonies were much more politically stable and democratic than the French, German, Dutch, and, and other colonies, Spanish and Portuguese as well. Uh, and part of that is said to be because the precedent system requires very highly trained judges and lawyers. Although it's expensive, it's well worth it because you're much more likely to eliminate arbitrary rule and, and, and increase the legitimacy of the system. Uh, it's also possible that this had to do with the fact that the English post-colonies also had the English civil service and the English bureaucracy transported. And English institutions were invested more heavily 
uh, as opposed to the other forms of colonialism, which were more mercantile and just designed to exploit the colonies just of their money and often enslave or uh, treat as serfs a lot of the members of these communities. In the last decade, the French colonies have caught up. And so if, if it was true for 30 years, from 1963 to 1993, in the last decade or so, it seems as though having common law as opposed to civil law doesn't make a country that's aspiring to democracy more or less stable or democratic, uh, certainly of the French colonies. Uh, and a lot of the problems of colonialism have less to do with the type of colonialism or who was the <coughs> colonial conqueror, <coughs> excuse me, and more to do perhaps with the time of independence. Because when Spain and Portugal uh, were defeated in the wars of independence in the 1820s, and Brazil finally in the latter 19th century, uh, the colonial power was not democratic. Whereas in Britain, Britain became quite democratic in the 19th century, and certainly in the 20th century, so that uh, the so-called <coughs> mission civilatrice, the civilizing mission, the white man's burden, uh, all of these excuses for colonialism that uh, had some truth to it, but not an awful lot of lie to it. But the truth was that they did <coughs> hold elections, establish British-style courts. Uh, lawyers were highly trained. If you go to Pakistan, you know you see people in shavar kameez on the street, but the lawyers wear their jackets, bl black jackets, white shirts, and black ties and our very active group fighting for democracy, in fact, lobbied heavily against Pervez Musharraf uh, for the reinstatement of a Supreme Court justice when he was fired because he was going to decide that Pervez Musharraf couldn't run for president again in their form of elected dictatorship. <clears throat> so uh, you have an activist bar in these post-colonies. Uh, you have a, a strong judicial system. But of course, you know some English post-colonies were less unstable, less stable than other English post-colonies. Certainly Nigeria and Pakistan have had a harder time with democracy than, say, India uh, or the Commonwealth Caribbean, which has been not only democratic, but in some cases quite affluent. In the case of Barbados, uh, Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, these are countries that since independence, even though they've had maybe high crime rates and capital punishment, have remained democracies, have not had coup d'etats, and for all their failings as democracies, are still dem democratic and uh, suggests that black majority countries that have African political roots you know, can certainly be as democratic as any other countries in the world. And again, they have the British courts, the British legal profession being created inside the country. So that <coughs> concludes my discussion today. I look forward to seeing you in the future. And if you have any questions, I'll take them now privately. Do you have any idea of